If you are not getting informed about current economic conditions, whether you're in mortgages, title, finance, accounting, or obviously real estate, you're doing yourself and your client base a disservice. This is the Knowledge Brokers Podcast, and I'm Tom Tool. I'm here with the newly crowned baddest bitch in real estate, Lisa Chinati, subbing in for Byron Lazine as he's golfing and having a grand old time in Tucson, Arizona with the broke agent. Apparently, that guy had to get married. I think it's a good move. Congrats, Eric. Obviously, very happy for you. So, Lisa, we're here talking about what I would say is one of the another volatile week in, in economic news where we're seeing Senate hearings. We're getting jobs reports. We're seeing rates go up and down. And what I want to lead off with is Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman. We all know him at this point. One of the possibly most hated people in the country right now by a lot of folks. He came out during a Senate hearing earlier in the week and got lambasted by both sides of the aisle. Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Georgia, Senator Warnock, came out and questioned his policies aggressively about how he's driving unemployment. What about the people that can't afford things? And, and I've never seen something like this. Usually it's one side supports, the other doesn't. This is a two-pronged attack, and he sat up there for three hours and got crushed. And then the markets reacted, right? We saw the market, the Dow Jones dropped. We saw rates come up. And a lot of people would say that Chairman Powell undid a lot of the positive momentum we had about the economy in those comments leading up to the March Fed Reserve meeting. Lisa, tell us more. What do you think? The sentiment on Wall Street was really shaky, right? I think that there was a lot of uncertainty coming out about which which way it's really going to which way it's going to go. I think going into the meeting, everybody was hoping that the that we were making some positive news with both jobs and inflation. I think really kind of hoping and expecting a softer landing for what was going to shake out. But I think instantaneously, the sentiment was that we were going to see a much higher increase in the rates. And I, I don't think many people were fully prepared for that huge, or maybe not huge, but the strength of the statements. How about that? I, I would agree. I mean, Powell was almost defiant up there. And I, I, gotta, I would not want to be up there getting questioned by all these senators. I mean, these people are They've all got an agenda. And when you see them all unite in one way, I find that to be very fascinating because that tells me that there's actually a legitimate concern across the country for everybody else. And when you see Elizabeth Warren attacking him, she had some very aggressive comments. I want to pull up a couple of them here and I'll, I'll read them verbatim uh, where she went on and said that uh, Chairman Powell is gambling with people's lives. Right. Like that that's pretty aggressive. Um and she went on to say, you cling to the idea that there's only one solution, lay off millions of workers. We need a Fed that will fight for families. And what she's worried about is two million people potentially losing their jobs and that this unemployment rate's going to go up, which we'll talk about here with the actual report said later in the show. But that was a major concern. And then you see Senator Warnock from Georgia saying, well, what about the people that can't afford anything anymore because inflation's out right. of control? And these are people that are on polar opposite ends of the political spectrum. And I am I'm Mr. Purple when it comes to politics. Like my goal is to be the most even shade of purple at all times. I mean, that's that's where you want to be. You want to be in the middle. And obviously you want to look at what's going to be best for people fiscally is a, is a primary concern that I have. And when you see that happen and people just attacking him either way, 
people are nervous. There's a lot of nerves in the market right now. And a lot of folks thought that we were going to see the interest rate hikes start to cool as we head into the spring, March, April, yep. May, maybe it's only like a 25 basis or hopefully a zero basis point increase. A lot of economists like Logan Motoshami from Housing Wire have been calling for that, for the Fed to slow their role in, 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 in the, that, that, that sort of, and, and stop, you know, br- bringing up these constant rate increases every meeting. Now, it sounds like they might go even higher. And, and, we, and we've seen that with the market reaction. So there's a lot of nerves across the country right now. And Wall Street obviously saw that as well. And the Dow reacted. And then we saw the 10-year yield react. Rates went up. I mean, we were talking before the show here. We're at like seven, seven and an eighth right now as of this morning when we're right. filming this. This is a big jump. And we know what happened the last time rates got to seven. So how are... We're obviously both running teams. We're, you know, both got, you know, a lot, a lot. I think between the two of us, probably have uh, over 100 salespeople that we work with on a regular basis. What are we communicating to consumers right now? Because it's an interesting time where there's still demand out there despite all this. There's people that are nervous. How are we taking this information and giving people certainty when they want to transact because their life dictates they need to? Well, I actually think that this is a great tie-in to one of the other topics that we were going to talk about earlier, which is that despite the fact that rates are as high as they are, right, and despite the fact that the rates are as volatile as they are, the inventory shortage, I think reading some of the stats about where the inventory shortage sits, that shortage is bigger than I anticipated. (laughs) I think inventory is taking a shit. So, I mean, let's call (laughs) it what it is. So, go ahead. Uh, but so when you understand the the uh, the dynamics of what's at play, right, it's not just a high rate market. It's not just a volatile market. There's legitimately a shortage of homes for people who have a basic human need for housing. And when you put all of that at play, I think it's making for a a market that I don't think this country has ever seen before and navigating it, I think is going to take a little bit of finesse and skill and being able to have conversations. Again, I go back to what I actually said last week with thinking about how do we help consumers accomplish their basic needs right now while understanding the volatility in the market and being able to explain to them some of these data and facts about what makes this different from all those prior markets, right? Um, and then also being able to give them the strategies to cope with it and make it work. Because what we all know is it's going to even back out, right? My gut says it doesn't even out this year. My gut actually says it doesn't even out next year, but that it evens out at some point in the next 24 months. Well, that, that that's a really great time frame to give people because I know there's a lot of folks out there. And you know, tell us what you think in the comments here. If you think that things are going to even out later this year. 2023, 2024, 2025, like Lisa's talking about, would love to hear what you're what you're seeing. Because when you look at this data here, in 2022, we saw 2.06 million households that were formed, which was the highest level of yearly household formation in the past decade. And we were talking before the show about this. And what I'm clear on is that has a lot to do with millennial home buyers who didn't buy that first starter home. And now they're playing catch up and everyone's competing for the move up properties. The median price point has not cooled at all. The luxury and premium, that's a little softer, obviously. There, there's some affordability things that are always there because 
the top of the market is only like three or four percent of all the homes that sell every year, depending on where you are, whether it's Boston, Philadelphia, California, wherever. So we have the highest number of households that were formed. So demand's not slowing down. That that that's what that nope. tells me right there. And that's a great data point. And then on top of that, during that same time, and you brought this up before the show, Lisa, 13.1 million housing units were started and 11.9 million were completed with 8.5 million being single family homes and 3.4 million being multi-units. So now we've got this high household formation. We don't have enough housing for them. And the gap in single family home construction and household formation grew to 6.5 million. So six and a half million homes is what we're short right now based on a statistical analysis. So how does an agent, how does the knowledge broker get that message out to people that are saying, hey, Lisa, hey, Tom, hey, Byron, hey, whomever, I do want to buy a home right now. I do want to invest in myself, build my net worth. I want to have a place for my family to live. And I just can't find anything because this objection has not gone away since really the end of 2020. And to your point, I don't see it changing anytime soon. Right. Well, and I think that that's the key is being able to articulate to consumers exactly what the data means. Right. I think that in that article, there were also some really great stats about how long it's going to take for those housing starts to actually catch up. And we're talking years, like mm -hmm. five, 10 plus years in order for the housing starts to actually catch up to what we're going to need to move forward. What that says to me is that pricing is going to continue to increase, especially mm -hmm. when you combine that those stats along with the things that we've been talking about and that are holding up those move up buyers from moving out right it is the they're tied into rates that start with a two or a three and it becomes a much more uh it's a bigger process to look at or a bigger investment to make the move up and like i said i it past year or past episodes i believe we're going to see that buyer hold on to a home, moving from three to five or five to seven, moving up into the 10 to 12 year mark, even in that move up inventory, it's not going to just magically come on the market. Uh, couple it with affordability is going to continue to be a factor at play, right? We all know that, but I don't think prices are going to truly depreciate across the country. And I think a lot of the conversations to have with buyers right now are, about just that, I think we're going to continue to see prices appreciate year over year, maybe not at the levels that we saw 2020, 2021, but the appreciation factor is still going to run strong. Yeah, I just I don't see a world where prices come down. I couldn't agree with you more. And we've yeah. got this demand. So what we left out with those past stats is that we've got 15.6 million households and only 13.1 million housing units were started. And then again, three about three and a half of those were multifamily. And almost 95%, 94.5% of all the multifamily homes that are being built, they're intended to be rentals, right? So those aren't on the table for a lot of folks. And we're talking about purchasing property. So, and at the end of 2022, multifamily housing starts represented 35.1% of all the housing starts, which is the highest level since 2015. We were coming out of that depression that we saw from 2008. So when you look at all of this, I think the challenge here is, is these median price points. So this, this number might yep. floor you here, Lisa. And you and I both work in closer to the median than a luxury market. I, I think that I mean, Boston's a little, little pricier than where, where we are in Philadelphia, but it, it's more of a, a median market. And 
just 10% of the homes that sold in the fourth quarter of 2022 sold for under 300,000. That number in 2019 was 41%. I mean, that's yeah. dramatic. I mean, and, and you talk about how prices have risen these past couple of years. It's not going to be that same pace. That was unsustainable. <clears throat> Excuse me. But what we, we will see is that they're still going to go up three to five percent every year. I don't see that slowing down at all. Is that your prediction? Yeah, I, I honestly, I think it's going to be on the higher end of that. I think we could see it five, six, maybe even seven in some markets. Um I think some markets will see three, right? I think some will see the lower end. But I think in that meat and potatoes purchase, which I think most agents typically work in, right? Like it is, that's the best way that I can always say it. It's not a luxury purchase. It's where people are purchasing out of need. The It's not a second home. It's not a vacation home. It's not an investment property. But that true need-based purchase it all ties in. The lack of inventory is going to continue to drive the prices up. There's no way to stop it. We're not in a kale smoothie market, Lisa. We're in the meat and potatoes market. I heard that from Jason Cassidy. He's out in San Diego. Uh, I think that's a great way to explain it, though, because it is, it's is—it's—it's the median price point. It's what people buy across right. the country. And you look at what the average income is. I mean, there's only so many homes in these higher price markets. And when you talk about prices going down, it's those high-end luxury markets that might feel it a little more than what we're going to feel. Right. And I always go back to what happened in 2008 to 2012. And our market, while prices went down, they didn't go down nearly as much as those other places that have these really high numbers. We're, we're built for the typical U.S. homeowner that has a typical income. And that's really what we're talking about here. So <clears throat> with that, and, and I think this is where the challenge comes in with inventory, if you're only looking at single family homes, the rate of housing starts would need to triple to keep up with demand. How do we make that triple? I, I don't I don't see how that's going to happen. So to your point, this is going to take a couple years. I could not agree with you more. And what I envision happening is you're going to see and, and, and tell me if it's like this in, in, in your market. So we have the city of Philadelphia and then there's four counties outside. The further west or north or south you go of the city. Then you start to see inventory pick up a little bit. Then you see more new construction than you normally would. And we don't have a lot of that here. I think people are going to have to expand the areas they want to search in because when you want to be downtown in this town, right? Like it, it's a borough, it's, a, it's by a train station, it's by the T. If you're up where, where you are, that market's not going to get any cooler. It's the places where they're developing. And I think that's where builders need to go. They need to look at almost developing new markets developing places that, hey, this has a downtown area that's a little run down. You're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania right now. Lancaster is a prime candidate for this. There's a lot of new construction in Lancaster. Um, that's about an hour and 15 minutes where, where we are right now outside of Philadelphia. So I think that's the only way. And people might continue to migrate to the suburbs. And then we've got the city market dynamics, which we talked about earlier. So how do you see all that playing out with relative to where you live, what the whether it's like a, a, an urban metro environment or if it's more of a rural environment or somewhere in between, where do you see builders having success or home buyers having success right now? Well, I think really under, the crazy part is that I think it's really going to be different in each market, right? Right now, Boston for us, the really urban part, I believe has more opportunity. I think, I don't know who I was texting with earlier, but I got an email that in downtown Boston, 
we have a developer offering a higher than normal buyer agency. It was me, by the way. Oh, sorry. (laughs) It was early. Yes. But a, a builder offering a higher than normal buyer agency commission, and it was condo construction, so not multifamily, not single family, but they were also offering to prepay two years of HOA fees in order to attract buyers. So understanding the dynamic there, right? But you go 20 minutes outside of that, and we're at a crazy 2020 market where it is 10, 20 offers on each additional property, just like we were talking about in your office yesterday with your agents, Mm. right? And helping buyers put in place strategies to get offers accepted in those markets. Up in Boston, for us, it's looking at, you'd have to go pretty far west to find any level of new development. And even going an hour outside of the city, we're talking two, three, four single family homes being built in one spot. Not, it's not like it is down in the south where you can mm-hmm. find or the west, right? Um, one of the other things that was interesting to point out with the housing starts is that builder confidence took such a fall in Q4 that I think that we're going to continue to feel the impacts of that, even where there is space to develop. Um, I think the builder confidence needs to come back just as much as the buyer demand. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, it's tough for builders when we're seeing that we're dealing with this inflation battle because everything yep. costs more for them, right? And I always tell my folks, I was on the phone with uh, Zara from our team last night, and she had a buyer that said, hey, I want new construction. And the council, if you're a knowledge broker, you want to pay attention to this because this is great council. And I, I'm curious if you agree, Lisa. It's almost always better to try, try to find the gently used property that's a couple years old 100%. than buying the brand new home because it's like buying a new home or a new car off the lot where there's always a premium there because someone else hasn't owned it. You can't make it the way you want. You can't get the super cool interior or the countertops that you want. You kind of get what you what's already there. And that's really sound advice because – Builders, they've got margins. They're running businesses. And I've seen so many times that these builders, they, they, they won't bend on their price. And then someone who bought a year ago comes on the market in the neighborhood and it's, wow, this home's pretty nice. I can deal with these couple of color choices. I'm getting a much better value. And that's someone that yep. is, is going to benefit because that, that hurts builder confidence. Builder confidence is based on people paying a higher number. They want to spend more. And with affordability concerns, which we're going to get into in a little bit here, I, I, it's going to take some time for that to come back. And it's all directly correlated to what we opened with, which is where are rates going and what are people having to pay right now? And then you've got this inflation right. fight that the Fed's dealing with. So it, it's a real cyclical, interesting market. And the market's doing things we haven't seen before. Agree, 100%. Uh, on a bunch of different levels, right? I think when you look at the gently used, if you will, versus brand new construction, one of the other things to talk to buyers about with this is understanding the additional cost and when affordability is such a pinch as it is right most buyers are buying at the very top of their price range just mm-hmm. to get in even in new construction around our parts new construction doesn't include the shades right the <laughs> thousands of dollars in window shades and toilet paper roll holders and all of that different kind of stuff and being able to articulate that to buyers so that they go in eyes wide open and understand that often the slightly reduced, if you will, price on the gently used home is actually even more reduced when you understand the additional out-of-pocket costs that are going to come with new construction. Um, And then the other side of it with builder confidence, I think we've got to see rates stabilize before Mm -hmm. builders are going to really feel confident. And I don't, I don't know that we're going to 
feel that anytime soon based on all of the Powell comments and everything else that's going on. Fucking Jerome Powell. I mean, I don't even know what else to say. So let, let's, let's talk about the rates here for a second. I always like bringing this up on the show, which is, and I'd love to hear in the comments where you think rates are going to go. We got a Fed meeting coming up in 12 days. 12 days, the next Fed meeting's happening. So we'll be covering this, obviously, very extensively here on Knowledge Brokers. Here's, here's how volatile the market is, and here's how crazy these comments were. And I'm using the word crazy intentionally. I don't like that word when we talk about this stuff. This is, 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 is let's, let's, let's sub in incredible. Let's just do that just, just for, uh, for my purposes here. So last week, one week ago, March 3rd, there was a 71 0.6% chance, according to the CME FedWatch tool, that we would see a 25 basis point increase. Then, a day ago, after we dropped these comments and people lost their mind, it went down to a 31% chance of a 25 basis point increase, and it was a 68% chance we were going to see a 50 basis point increase. I thought we were kind of past all that. Before those comments, yep. I was thinking 25 or maybe hopefully zero, fingers crossed. Right. Now, today because of the jobs report, which we're going to talk about, because it's all this conflicting data, we, we see now that it's a 57.5% chance we get 25 basis points and a 42.5% chance we have a, 20, a, a 50 basis point increase. So it's almost like 50-50. It's like 55-45. It's a coin toss. Yep. Well, but look at how volatile the predictions are based on the Fed said one thing, Here's the actual data, which I know we've been struggling with this for two, three years now of informing people, being that knowledge broker to the consumer. And it's almost like headlines versus reality. So given that big difference here and the jobs report, what's your prediction for mid-March? What's the Fed going to do? I'll make a prediction as well. And then we'll jump into the jobs report here and explain how this is going to be conflicting. So my prediction is that it is the the 50 point jump. I don't think it's going to be just 25. Um, I, I think it's going to be a mistake if you want my honest take on it, but I think that we have to expect the 50 point jump. I think that when you look at the true data within the report, I think that that is, I think you have to, it's like a layers of an onion. And when you peel back all the different layers and actually go deep into understanding, not just the numbers, but what might be, buried underneath the numbers and why the numbers are what they are. I think it has a little bit different impact, but my gut says they go off of just looking at the numbers without understanding the deeper issues at play. I'm guessing based on your smirks that you kind of agree. I unfortunately, and I'm disappointed that I agree because I don't want it to see that happen. Um, yeah, I, I, I yeah. watch the highlights of the of the Fed. I don't got three hours to watch Senators and Jerome Powell argue. I, I look for the highlights and kind of the crib sheet, right? And at one point, and, and I may be misquoting this here, I think it was when he was going back and forth with Elizabeth Warren, he basically said like, hey, what do you want me to do here? We don't have any other options. And this is the only card they're playing, which right. may, may or may not be true. I'm a big believer in letting the markets play out a little bit and – in real estate in general, I think when you let things play out, usually good things come. I'm sure you've seen that. You got to let let the forces happen. And we talked about this last yep. week on the show where there's this micromanagement of a bonfire where it's like, okay, fires up a little bit. Let's dump some water on it. Uh, it it's down a little bit. It's it's like one centimeter off where we want it. We're going to throw a ton of wood on and, and the right. lighter fluid and everything else. So it, there's a lot of that going on. I do agree. There, I don't think there's any shot. It's, it's less than 50 basis points because – 
they have been so adamant about this. And I think it was a it was a chance before we got all this data that came out. But now this this fight on inflation and this two percent target, it's coming out more right. and more. So with that, let's talk about this jobs report, Lisa, because I think this is where the conflicting evidence is. And is it the right move? So the unemployment rate, and this this came out this morning, it rose to three point six percent above the expectation of three point four percent. So about five and a half percent higher than where they thought it would be. Uh, and on top of that, this is the number that that's pretty wild. But there's conflicting data here. You brought it up. Three hundred and eleven thousand jobs were added. That's well above the estimate that the Dow had of two hundred twenty-five thousand jobs. It's thirty-eight point two percent higher. So we saw a lot more jobs come come into play. Eighty-six thousand more jobs than anticipated. Unemployment, though, still ticked up higher. And you want to talk about what people are actually getting paid. And I think this is the really interesting part here. So why don't you jump in there and then we can unpack this. Yeah. So the crazy part that, you know, when you really understood what the Fed expected for the increase in wages, the deficit, the wages didn't increase nearly as much as what the Fed was expecting. I don't I didn't run the percentages like you did, but I think it was off by 0.2 or 0.4% on the increase. And so Mm -hmm. while the jobs might be being added, the employers, here's what I look at as an employer myself, right? I'm attracting talent, but I'm not paying that talent as much as I was two years ago, right? And I'm not actually, I'm getting so many applicants in when I go to replace a position that I'm not even having to pay as much as I thought I was going to have to pay to fill that position right now. Um, and so I think that those are some of the big keys. Understanding the data, my thoughts on it, and I don't know about yours, are really that a lot of this is still the impacts of what happened during COVID. And a lot of particularly parents being forced out of the workplace to accommodate either the lack of daycare spots that it still exists today. Huge right? issue, huge issue. Um, I know you're actually facing that with uh, some folks in your office. Yeah. They just can't find quality and or affordable daycare options. Um, And so I think that that problem is still persisting at some level. But I think it's also that the parents who had school age kids where remote learning was a very big reality and impossible to manage was, you know, a, a big issue that's now starting to be resolved now that school is back in person. And so that all those people that were forced out of the workplace are being able to jump back into the workplace and we're still replacing jobs at, at a certain level, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, I mean, the, the daycare thing is real. We, we were talking about that yesterday when you, when you were here at my office, just people, they, they can't find spots. There's lotteries. Folks are waiting right. outside and it's affecting their ability to, to go back to work. So that's a real challenge. There's also some people yep. that no matter what you said, they were, and I, I've seen these applicants come through. Hey, is this a hybrid position? Is this work from home? Yep. And th- there's this mindset that that was going to be the norm. And I, I know for from talking to you and other business owners, people are way more productive in general, not everybody, in general, in the office. So you've got to make a decision as a business owner. And that, that issue has been forced more than ever. I mean, there, if someone yep. says this is a hybrid or work from home position, my answer is a clear no, and then we move on to the next candidate because it's it's going to be an issue later. If that's their mindset, that's yep. not going to change. So seeing that you can get 
equal talent, I would argue maybe better talent for a little less than what you thought you could. And I mean, we've all replaced positions here. You and I talk about this constantly along with Byron. A players do matter. And if you can get an A player at the same rate or the same comp package you were paying someone that was a, a B or a C player, that's a, that's a win, right? So this data, what this tells me is, sure, jobs were added. Spending might be down a little bit on like a per person level, not necessarily in, in general. Because if you listen to any business podcast right now, I, I listen to Gary Keller, Think Like a CEO, that, that sort of stuff. It's, hey, where can you make your cuts or where can you take money and shift it on your P&L to a place that's going to be more effective and drive revenue better? And that's what people Correct. do in times like this. So seeing that number is not surprising. And what ends up happening is that all of a sudden these numbers get skewed. I mean, yeah, there was jobs added, but I would argue that these jobs were taken away, like you said, before the pandemic, and they're just getting filled again in a lot of places. You're seeing restaurants yep. have to staff up more. I mean, that the, the meals and entertainment business, I mean, they're, they're, I think they're the toughest fill right now because a lot of people don't want to work those hours. So looking at all this, it's kind of conflicting data. It's like, yeah, well, unemployment's up, but spending's down. So it's actually a, a, a net negative effect on the economy, even though all these jobs were added. And that's where the Fed's getting it wrong, in my view. That's where Jerome Powell's not seeing this. He's just looking at 2%, 2%, 2%, and that's all he's focusing on with inflation. And that's where we're getting lost right now. I mean, I'm, I'm clear that's the issue because the, the data's the data. You're, you're more analytical than most people I know. I mean, what, what's your take on this? No, exactly that. It's it, Like I said, I think it's being able to understand and so many points about what you said. A, you've got to give your strategies time to play out. Talking about being knowledge brokers, it would be the same as an agent listening to this podcast, making a decision about a lead gen strategy without giving it time to actually truly see the impact, right? Same difference. Yep. If You can start down the path, but if you don't give it time to actually fully come to fruition, you might give up on it too soon and go down a path that ends up costing you money as an agent. And I think we're doing the same thing to your point, the fire hose on the fire that's slightly too big and the cans of kerosene and gasoline added to a fire that's slightly too small. So I think that that's part of it. And I think everybody has to look at the long-term data and the real impacts of why the numbers are what they are. Because if you just look at the surface numbers, it's a different picture than when you really dig deeper. And it it's tough to do, it's tough to understand, and some of it's gonna be gut. Right. We always talk about that. Business decisions are often gut based decisions and feeling it, feeling what it's like in the marketplace. Well, you hear people talk about that all the time in, in sports, right? You're a big Red Sox fan. And then there's the folks that say the, the, the decision makers are too analytical and they don't look at the person side or the human side. Right. So let's say you have someone underperforming as an employee or as a salesperson or whatever, any business doesn't matter. This is not real estate specific. And it's it may not be get rid of the job, it might be, okay, this isn't the right person for the job. It's not the right person in the right seat. So can I replace that person and get equal or better performance for the same cost? And right now, based on this data and a couple anecdotal instances that you and I have both talked about, yeah. the answer is yes. And if people are yeah. doing that, and then here's the other thing, some companies aren't going to make it. So this better talent that's out there may want to hook up with a company that they have a lot more confidence and they believe in what they're doing. And 
the leadership, whether it's a business owner or a board or whomever, they're going to get through this. They're going to charge the storm over the next 12, 24 months versus playing defense, hiding all the things that we know aren't going to work in the business world as, you know, as chiseled business owners ourselves. So that's going to, you're, you're laughing, but this is all very chiseled. serious here. <laughs> chiseled is the one I'm laughing I don't know. At. I mean, a chiseled probably wasn't the right word. All right. So uh, veteran business owners, how's that? Is that better for you? My, my Syracuse education is failing me once again. So uh, I, I don't know what else to say. Might be have to do with the, the big firing this week of Jim Beheim. So the, the point is, Veteran business owners, right? The ones that have been through a number of these downturns. And and what goes up must come down. This happens all the time, right? Historically, there's these cycles. We're going into one now. And it's been a 10-year run, by the way. So it's probably overdue for a lot of people. But think about the business owner that's maybe like a seven-year business owner or a five-year business owner. And they, they, they made all this hay during COVID. They think that's what it's like. This is the time when you take market share, and this is the time when there's a lot of opportunities. And if you can bring those A players into your organization, ultimately, and and pay them the same as a B or a C, right? That's the key here. A players make a difference. Even if you're paying them a little more, the production you get is going to be so much more important. So to tie this back to what we're talking about here, bringing knowledge to the marketplace for the agents that are listening, for the mortgage brokers, for title Obviously, you got to tighten up and, and look at your business model a little differently, especially for those owners. I would argue the individual agent needs to do the same thing. Where are you spending? What's working? What's not? You've got to understand your numbers. How do you communicate all this uncertainty to sellers and buyers? What, what are you coaching your team on right now? And let's start with the seller side first, because that's what's going to drive production for everyone listening right now. The more listings you take, you're going to bring in more revenue. Think about how many people you put to work when you list a home. You get the photographer. You get maybe a painter, maybe someone that does flooring, like all the home prep work. Then you sell the house. You put a title company to work. You get a lender involved. GDP is real, and housing makes up roughly about 17% of that, depending on the numbers you look at. How are you coaching sellers right now? And then we'll move to the buyer side because these are the conversations folks got to have. Hey, thanks for checking out Knowledge Brokers Podcast. If you want to start implementing some of the things that we're talking about on this podcast, having the edge of information, being able to talk to more people, being able to deliver this information to more consumers in your marketplace, you're going to need time. Everybody needs time. How do you get your time back? You outsource the things that are slowing you down, whether that's uploading the listing into the MLS or doing the transaction details, all the paperwork back and forth, or that marketing checklist that you're handling every single day. What do we do in both of my businesses, whether it's BAM or my real estate company? It's 687 transactions in 2022. We use virtual assistants. That's how we scale up. We have virtual assistants in every single segment of our business. Tom and Lisa, who you're hearing from on this podcast today, they use virtual assistants. Who do we use? We use Virtudesk. The link is down below. You can get $250 off of your startup fee with Virtudesk. Do not grow your business without having virtual assistance this year in 2023. Use the link below for Virtudesk, $250 off your startup fee. Let's go. Let's get our time back and be that knowledge broker. 100%. So first is understanding the seller. Are we talking about a seller that needs to buy, a seller that can move into rental, a seller that is choosing to sell, or a seller that needs to sell? excuse me, and the conversations are a little bit different with all of them, but the root of it remains the same. The thing is, every single seller has a ton of equity that they can take advantage of, and it's a function of what they can do with that equity and how they can make it work for them. For some, it's going to be providing a safety net to get through potentially some of this job loss. 
For some of them, it could be cashing out an equity that they built for an investment to fund a child's education, to fund a retirement, to fund whatever it might be. For some, they're still going to be able to take advantage of that equity and take advantage of the move up situation, right? And being able to take advantage of that. And then the reality of, I think what's going to start to happen is, I think the job loss is going to start to impact some folks who need to sell. And there's going to be some conversations around that as well. Um, with the agents, we're still encouraging them quite heavily. Honesty is absolutely the number one. Transparent and being able to have a solid understanding about what's going on in the market. You want to know what was interesting? I was texting with you about this earlier. In Massachusetts, we just had our single biggest week of new inventory yes. hit the market. It is a five-month high in one single week. Um, and in the greater Boston area and the MLS that I was searching, over 1,000 new listings between single-family homes, condos, and multifamilies from Monday to Thursday night, right? So I expect that that's going to continue an upward trend. And I think it's going to provide some opportunity for buyers out there. What I don't think is going to happen is that it's going to create a softening in rates and that this is going to be a glut of inventory. And I think it's really important that we continue to explain to sellers that it's not like prices are going to soften because to everything else that we've discussed earlier, the supply still doesn't solve the demand. I, I love what Make you sense? said there about it's it, that rates aren't going to aren't going to go down. And I, I would love a glut of inventory. I think that would be great for every person in the industry right now, because then home shoppers can maybe have a couple days to think about a purchase. Right. That's going right. to be better for everybody. You know what happened 2020 to up until, you know, end of June, beginning of July last year was unsustainable. We both know that a lot of people want to hope yep. that's going to be the norm. That's that's not going to happen for a very long time. No. Um, nope. To your point. I mean, I think the conversation with sellers is the same conversation we've had during seasonal markets in years past prior to 2020. Hey, there's going to be more homes that get listed in the spring. People want to wait yep. for the grass to be green. They want to try to time school moving. And as a seller, the best time for you to be on the market is when the neighbors aren't. So if you want to capitalize on that, and I would show them this data, and this is where being the knowledge broker is important, studying the market, knowing that number cold. Lisa said it to me yesterday in my office, we were, we were making calls, doing some work, running a training for our team. And she said, Hey, look at this number. Cause that's part of her daily routine. And that's what agents need to be looking at. You can't just fly by the seat of your pants anymore because sellers want information. I, I actually, I, I saw a Facebook post on the uh, township I live in this morning and you probably see these too. It's like these Facebook groups of people that live there and they say, I'm looking for a good realtor. And then all of a sudden the realtors comment and I, I wrote on there, I said, hey, over under on this is probably about 117 comments. Good luck. I don't care who you use. I would argue that you want to interview them, ask them questions about the market and make sure they understand what's happening. Because if they don't, there's someone out there that will. And the market's drastically changing. Ask them for reviews, ask them for a track record and make sure you're interviewing people. I don't even I'm not looking for the business. I mean, it'd be great if they called right. us. That's fine. I'm trying to coach the client on what they need to do. And that, that's got to be the approach. Hey, know the numbers, be able to answer questions. And to me, like, I think there's a couple key things. It's inventory levels, rates and rate projections, negotiation tactics that are working and that aren't in, in the current climate, and days on market. I mean, those are the things you want to know. And pricing trends, obviously. Like if, you can just, if you can explain those five or six things, you're going to be way ahead of most people. At least did I miss anything there? 
No, uh, those are absolutely the critical ones. And it, it's not that difficult to understand, but you got to take the time to understand it. So sellers were coaching like we have during seasonal markets. Buyers are a little different. I mean, you, you actually gave a great presentation to our team yesterday about standing out. You know, not just you think you're doing all the stuff you're supposed to. And right now, uh, it's even when you're, you're doing all the right things that most people wouldn't do during a normal market, you're still not even close. So right. how are you having conversations with buyers? And that'll be a great place to kind of leave it here. And then we can talk about anything else that we might have missed. Well, uh, to your point, the training that we discussed in your office, I think, is twofold. It's earning the business from the buyer. But in a lot of ways, I feel like a buyer's agent's biggest job right now is earning the business from the listing agent, right? Especially in those markets where um, I, I think I asked in your office, how many agents have been in multiple offer situations and lost over the past four weeks? And I think it was just about every single hand in your room mm -hmm. went up, right? And we all feel it. Um, and so it's being able to earn the business from the buyer and then being able to get the listing agent to work with you and engage with you and have your buyer's offer stand out to get really get a shot, right? Thinking about it, 20 offers on a home, what's the percentage? What are the odds that that buyer's offer gets accepted? 5%. It's good math. Right? Good math by you. Yeah. Yeah, I got that. <laughs> well, I, I, you bring up a great point. And, and you talked about like, and we actually had this situation happen where we had two people on our team made the same offer or an offer on the same home. We have like some templated offer letters we use, which three years ago, like you're way ahead of the curve. Well, here's what happens with this stuff. We both work with Tom Ferry. What's it? Rip off and duplicate R&D is like over and over and over again. So if a smart agent, a knowledge broker, they see that come across their desk, there's a way they can implement that. The listing agent said to the guy who won the offer, which was on our team, hey, do you guys all write this? Are you all easy to work with? And because we sent the same letter. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I, I would view that agent as someone that maybe, maybe you should implement that in his business. That was just my kind of opinion. But the point is going above and beyond isn't the same as it was three or four years ago. And nope. there was three questions. Um, our friend Jill Biggs told us that they were, they're asking everyone after every single appointment, and this is typically buyer appointments. And this, these kind of questions are the kind of things you want to ask yourself, have that meeting with yourself prior to it's what, what are my next steps? What are most important? What are the most important needs to the clients? And what am I doing to go above and beyond with this particular client to win their business and get them a house? And if you ask yourself that and really ask yourself that, I'm clear, one, that's the knowledge broker who's going to win in this market. And two, you're going to have a better business the next three, six, nine, 12 months because that's the mindset we need. That's playing offense. That's charging the storm. That's being the buffalo running into the blizzard that's like got like lightning shooting at it and all that other stuff. And that's who's going to win in the current marketplace. Yeah, I agree 110%. It's going to the back in the day, we used to say the secret agents would lose, yeah. right? And I think it's, it's always kind of leveling it up. And it's being able to adapt to think ahead and to innovate. And I think that that's probably the best word to use with this is but not innovate with chat GPT or technology, it's innovate on the relationship basis. Ah, that's it. You know what, it's relationships with everybody. I mean, it's all relationships. I mean, and that that's really, that's who's going to win in this market. The knowledge broker knows how to win relationships. The knowledge broker knows all this data we talked about. But if you can't yeah. communicate it well, and you come off like 
a mathematician that should be in the corner, like calculating receipts and reconciling bank statements, that's not going to connect with consumers. And there's got to be that empathy Correct. standpoint too. So all of this ties together. And a lot of people are going to say, hey, this is the basic stuff every agent should be doing. That's not the basics. The basics in real estate are, where am I going to lunch today? How soon can I leave the office? Do I really have any appointments? What calls am I not going to make? The advanced person studies the market. The advanced person makes their calls. The advanced person works on relationship building. And I think that's something we need to, Tom Ferry told me this last week. I know you're laughing because it's so true. And yeah. the advanced agent is the one that's going to win. They're iterating and innovating and getting making their business a little better every day. And yep. that's going to be what it really takes to work with these sellers and these buyers because consumers are way too smart now. I mean, when I got into the business, I don't think, you know, it wasn't as easy to find out all this information about real estate agents. I'm sure it was the same with you. Now it's, it's you, you almost know who the play. All you got to do is Google stuff and it comes up. All of it. Yep. 100%. So, Lisa, you said it all this week. This was an excellent episode. I would argue this might be the best episode we've had of the podcast so far because we don't have Byron here stepping all over everybody and dominating the conversation. So, can we get you back on in a future episode? Is it, can, we, can we sign a, a, another contract in. here? All right. So we've <laughs> replaced Byron. That. We've replaced Byron. He can keep golfing in Tucson. Um, if you've got anything you want us to unpack next week, drop it in the comments here. Byron will be back next week, all kidding aside. We're going to have Lisa on as a regular because this show gets better with the more knowledge that's out there. And Lisa knows her stuff. Very grateful for you, Lisa. Thanks for coming on. Make sure you go out there and get that knowledge.